As always, it is a great joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you and to know that that is why you are here. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 103 this morning? I've entitled my discourse to you, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Obviously, we're stepping away from our study of the book of Daniel here this morning. Not only because it's the Thanksgiving season, but also because I know many of you are discouraged. Many of you are afraid. I know that a number of you are being threatened to lose your job because of this COVID vaccine mandate. Some of you already have. I know some of you are struggling financially because of that. In fact, I got two calls just this week, two more families who want to move here to be a part of the church um, because of this very issue. They've lost their job, and um, one from Illinois, one from California. We keep getting people from these liberal states. Both of them said we are literally trying to escape. And so I know that there is a lot of frustration and a lot of people, others of you are, have talked with me, you're horrified about the critical race theory and LGBTQ indoctrination in, in the schools being forced on your children. And we all know every time you turn on the television, every time you go to a mall or do anything, you're, you're just confronted with all of this wickedness. And it can be very discouraging. So sometimes we just need to be really encouraged, you know, and that's what we find whenever we come to the Word of God. I mean, just think about this. We're citizens of another kingdom, right? This is not our home, and so we need to always come back to the objective truths of Scripture and be reminded that our sovereign God rules over all things, and we need to come together, especially during this season of the year, and give thanks as our forefathers did when they escaped from Europe to come to this new land and worship in freedom. That's what we want to do here today, to give thanks. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And certainly for people that have no fear of God, they cannot give thanks as we can. True gratitude cannot exist apart from grace. And as a result, those that do not know God and reject the gospel are those that have been given over to the consequences of their depravity. So this morning, I want to take you into Psalm 103 to help us give thanks. This is a magnificent hymn of praise written by David where he's literally engaging in a conversation with himself to remind himself and tell himself to give praise to the Lord, a personal call to worship. And we can all learn from this. And here David, as the founder of Israel's choirs and orchestra, writes a hymn of praise for all generations to sing. Let me read it to you. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Dear friends, When you fully understand this psalm, it will animate your hearts to even further thanksgiving. This is a magnificent psalm that I believe rises above all of the other peaks of adoration in the psalmist's mountain range of praise. This is full of gospel truths. Now, in terms of the historical context, we're not real sure It doesn't say. There are some arguments that are rather compelling that this was attributed to the latter years of David's life as he reflects upon the odious nature of sin that he's seen in his own life and seen all around him as well as the reality of pardon that saved him from his sins. And so he has a a great understanding and love for God's saving works. And this is typical of older people. As we age, we have more to praise God about, right? All of us that are older. And here he lifts his voice of praise for, for the undeserved mercy that is his, and he magnifies Jehovah because of, of his steadfast love for the people of Israel. And then he summons all of God's creation to join him in adoring the Lord. The, the division here is real simple. We're going to see three categories here. In the first five, five verses, we will read of a personal call to worship. 
And then in verses 6 through 18, we will see him move to a national call to worship. And then finally, in verses 19 through the end, a universal call to worship. So let's look at this and apply it to our lives. First of all, notice a personal call to worship. He begins saying in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I want you to ask yourself, does this describe the passion of my heart? Do I instruct my soul in such a way? He begins saying, bless the Lord. This is a phrase that appears 23 times in the Old Testament, and seven of those times are right here in this psalm. And wherever you see it in the Old Testament, it is always a formal call to worship where God's people voice with their lips their most sincere adoration for all that he is and all that he has done, for the majesty of his holiness. And I fear this is missing often in evangelicalism today. I fear there is an overall lack of reverence that is manifested in people whose lives are bereft of private worship. And therefore, public worship becomes shallow because they have a shallow understanding of the God of glory and all that he has done. Many times their theology is therefore their lives are as shallow as frost on a pumpkin. There's no depth. There's no weight to it. Now, to bless is the opposite of to blaspheme. Bless means to acknowledge the Lord in his position of sovereignty, in his power over all that he has created. And Notice he uses the word Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, this is Yahweh. This is the Old Testament name of God that we've discussed before. It appears 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It is derived from the tetragrammaton, the four letters, the four Hebrew consonants that transliterated in English are Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And it comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew verb for being, um, kava. So the name indicates that God is and that God wills to be. It implies that he had no beginning and he has no ending. He is ever present. Moreover, what it is saying is that he, his being is derived from his own self-determination. I know your head begins to explode when you think of this. He is who he is eternally, and he always will be. You will recall that God revealed, quote, his name and, quote, my name forever at the burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3. And there God responded to Moses' questions about, you know, who are you? Who should I tell the people that you are? And he said, I am who I am. I am there in Exodus 3.14, which speaks of his eternal, unchanging nature. Beloved, unless you have some basic understanding of this, you'll never be able to praise him as he deserves. Jesus repeatedly claimed to be the Son of God. He identified himself as the great I Am in the Gospels, the Old Testament name of Yahweh. So when David tells his soul to praise the Lord... 
It's ultimately including the Lord Jesus Christ, who is therefore the pre-existent, self-existent, uncreated creator, sustainer, redeemer, and consummator of all things. That's who we worship. That's who Jesus is. Now, mind you, about 71% of professing evangelicals do not believe what I just said. Do you believe that? According to a Ligonier ministry survey, 7 in 10 evangelicals believe Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Beloved, that is just sheer heresy. That's the mid-4th century heresy of Arianism. If you want to get technical about it, that's what cults believe, like the Mormons. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny that he is the second person of the triune Godhead, that he is co-equal and consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father. They deny all of that. And that means, therefore, that seven in ten professing evangelicals are not Christians. Can I make that any clearer? That's consistent with what Jesus warned in Matthew 7. This is what happens when predators fill pulpits, when Christ is not preached, when so-called Christian people, according to 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 3, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. He goes on to say they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto myths. In fact, what I just said would have me be removed from the pulpit in the majority of evangelical churches today. Do you realize that? My friends, if Jesus wasn't God, we are all fools. And we are all doomed. We have no hope of ever being reconciled to a holy God apart from Christ. So David calls himself to worship. You might say David is preaching the gospel to himself here in this passage, a great act of thanksgiving worship. And he begins by summoning all of his faculties to bless or acknowledge Yahweh in his position of sovereign power with all the honor that's due to his name. He alone is the object of his praise. God, very God. So again, he says, bless the Lord. And then he says, oh, my soul. The term soul in this context um, refers to an individual's being, his his mind, his heart, his will, everything that he is. And this demonstrates David's desire to be obedient to the supreme commandment, the foremost commandment. Remember, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 13. 37, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Oh, child of God, every sunrise, every dawn should be an opportunity for you to look out and praise the Lord. Call your innermost being to give him praise for all that he is and to bless his holy name. Now, how do you bless his holy name? Well, you first of all got to understand what his name is, what, what that means. 
and his holy name. Holiness means totally other, totally transcendent, totally separate from sin, beyond anything we could imagine. In fact, holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It portrays his infinite otherness, his, his incomprehensible transcendence. It portrays his, his consummate perfection, his moral purity, his eternal glory. Holiness stands alone as the defining attribute of who he is as a person. And throughout scripture, we read of the trihagion, the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Isaiah 6. Holiness being the summation of all of his glorious perfections, all of which are contained in his name. This is why we bless his holy name. Moses warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28, verse 58, quote, to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. And as we look at the Psalter, we see that he is referred to in various places as the King of glory, the God of glory. And it's for this reason in Psalm 115 and verse 1, we read, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your, what? To your name give glory. And Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 102, verse 15, So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. God is jealous over his name because he is jealous for his glory. This is why we are commanded in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 20 and verse 7. In his model prayer, you will recall, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And he begins by saying, Your Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Matthew 6 and verse 9. This is a passionate petition. It's not a statement of fact. He's asking God to make his name hallowed, to make it sanctified. We are to pray that he will cause his name to be treated with the kind of respect and adoration and holiness that it deserves, that he might be feared, that he might be obeyed, that he might be worshipped and glorified. You read about this in Leviticus 10. And isn't it wonderful to interact with brothers and sisters in Christ who understand these things? Who know what I'm talking about in the very core of their being. The kind of people that can give full-throated praise to what David said in Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humbled will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now back to Psalm 103. David continues in his call to worship. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. 
So this is to be a continual exhortation to never forget these things because he knows that we are prone to do that. We are prone to get distracted with all of the silliness of life and his benefits can easily be taken for granted. Now let me give you a heads up. What are his benefits that he lists here? And there are many, but the the ones that he lists in verse 3, the first benefits would include being pardoned and healed, verse 4, being redeemed and crowned, and verse 5, being satisfied and renewed. That's a good starting place, right? Think of all the benefits that he's bestowed upon you. And the benefits that he uses to describe here are foundational to everything that we have and everything that we are, everything that we've been promised. I think of Psalm 116, beginning in verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And he answers it saying, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. We could go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Benefit in the original language karpos is uh, it means fruit or it means harvest the the product or or the result or an advantage or the profit earned because of something And the benefit that we receive is all because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Oh, dear Christian, may we never allow our soul to forget these benefits. So often when I'm with saints on their deathbed, and unfortunately I've been there quite a bit here of late, it's interesting to see how they love to reflect on the benefits that are theirs in Christ. Nothing else matters at that point, right? To realize that you've been pardoned and healed, redeemed and crowned, satisfied and renewed. Now in verse 3, he begins to rehearse these benefits. He says, who pardons all your iniquities. In the original language, this is in the present tense in the active voice, which means our forgiveness of sin is perpetual. It's perpetual. It's a benefit we currently enjoy and we will continue to enjoy. You see, real practically, we have no need for a priest to mediate our forgiveness, right? We have no need for absolution, whereby some priest comes along and gives us a sacrifice of, or a sacrament of penance and frees us from sin. None of that stuff. No need for purgatory where we must suffer and be cleansed before we can go to heaven. None of those heretical things. No, God pardons all our iniquities. And beloved, herein is the fountainhead of all of our praise. I mean, without this, there would be no cause for any thanksgiving, right? There would be no reason for praise because we would all be damned. The theme of forgiveness is uppermost in David's mind. It's the dominant theme of his psalm. He's going to speak of it again in verse 8, 10, 11, 12, and 17. He goes on to say, who heals all your diseases. 
Now, bear in mind here, the context is God's pardon for sin, not the healing of physical diseases. There's no automatic physical healing in the atonement. The forgiveness of sins does not guarantee the, the, the healing of the body. Now, all believers get sick. All believers eventually die. I don't mean to be gloom, gloom and doom here, but that's just the reality, right? That's just the reality of life. And these passages teach us that God has his purpose even in our sicknesses. So here what we have is a reference to the healing of spiritual diseases. Indicative of, of Hebrew parallelism that rhymes in, in thought, not, not in sound. It rhymes in meaning. This phrase is just another way of expressing the pardoning of our iniquities. If you go, for example, to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6, where Isaiah is describing uh, Judah's wickedness, he says, From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jeremiah seventeen fourteen: heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. So again, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. He has pardoned and healed. And then in verse 4, we're going to see that he's also redeemed and crowned. Notice verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. What a graphic illustration, referring to the pit of corruption, a, rever a reference here to the resurrection of life. He has reversed the sentence of eternal death. My Talk about something to be thankful for. In Psalm 16, beginning in verse 9, we read, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. If we went to Psalm 100, that great psalm of thanksgiving, psalm of David, we see that David there expresses the primary motive for his praise. It is he, he says, who has made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 and verse 3. This is a reference to actually regeneration. He has redeemed us and created new life within us. The emphasis here isn't so much on the fact that God created us physically out of nothing, even though that is true, but rather he has recreated us, making us new creatures in Christ. Second Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. A new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, apart from an accurate understanding of God's saving grace, his transforming grace that begins with regeneration, that, that supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead, apart from that, we would have no basis. 
we would have no reason for any kind of thanksgiving because we would not be saved. Because again, apart from grace, all is lost. So all true thanksgiving is, is anchored in the bedrock, the, the Gibraltar of what God has done on our behalf. He alone redeems your life from the pit. He goes on in verse 4, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness speaks of his covenantal faithfulness, his hesed, the Hebrew, his loyal, faithful, steadfast love. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament. It stresses the idea of belonging together, those who belong together in this love relationship. And David fully understand, fully understood, I should say, that salvation is all of grace. God is the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. And beloved, I want to continue to rehearse these things in your mind so that they become a part of who you are because these are the things that animate worship in spirit and in truth. We see this again in David's psalm of repentance. You will recall in Psalm 51, he cries out to the Lord for forgiveness solely on the basis of of God's steadfast love, his grace. There we read in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy, here it is, loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's amazing, isn't it? Though sin, our sin, makes us undeserving of any honor whatsoever, nevertheless, he not only removes our sentence of death when we come to saving faith in Christ, but also clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. We, we become joint heirs with Jesus. Magnificent truths. And how much more would David's heart be animated to adoring praise if, if he had known what we now know about the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. Verse 3, he's pardoned and healed. Verse 4, he's redeemed and crowned. And then verse 5, he has satisfied and renewed. Notice verse 5 who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You see, friends, the life that is ours in Christ gives us strength. It it fills us with, with the energy, the power of the Holy Spirit, so much so that we can be likened to the majestic eagle that flies in the heavens, that soars high in the heavens. And I, I think there is implied here a, a promise for all of those who fear the Lord and who honor him with this kind of worship that there will be an additional comfort and, and strength to help them recover in the natural aging process so that they will be filled with new life and joy and in many ways return to the days of their youth. I find it interesting to see that in older people who have walked with the Lord for years and years. They, they have just a, a boundless energy. The body may be failing, but, but they have a boundless energy to praise the Lord, to worship Him. Isaiah 40 and verse 31, 
Those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And again, what a joy it is to be around godly, elderly people. And I'm putting myself now in that category. And it's going to get more and more elderly as the years go on, right? It's going to be true for all of us. Though the hair may be white, though the skin may be wrinkled, though the back may be bent, their eyes sparkle with the joy of the Lord. Their spiritual resolve is as strong as ever. And here we see a picture, dear friends, of, of genuine heart worship. Again, ask yourself, does this describe the attitude of my heart? Does this describe my life? If not, why not? And the answer is ultimately is because these things are not a priority in your life. You either don't know who God is or you don't really care because your soul has gone in secret search of other lovers. And subtly you become an idolater. Dear friends, when loving God is a priority, you will make time. When it's not, you will make excuses. So he begins with a personal call to worship and then he moves to a national call to worship beginning in verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And we see this all through scripture and we've all experienced this. He does this most notably by demonstrating his righteousness even to those who hate him and pouring out his wrath upon those who oppress those that belong to him. He goes on in verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. And here he's just rehearsing his history He knew what we all know from Scripture, that God gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses then descends from the mount with the tablets of stone, and he sees all of the wickedness of the people put on display as they're worshiping some golden calf that they've called Yahweh. So Moses shattered the tablets of stone that contained the Ten Commandments. We read about this in Exodus 32. Then God judges the people. And after that, Moses once again returns to the mount. He receives the new tablets of stone. And there God revealed to Moses that indeed he is a God filled with mercy and with compassion, a God that will forgive sin. And there in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, We read what David now repeats here in Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And then he says, he will not always strive with us. Strive could be translated dispute or find disagreement with. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. In other words, dear friends, he will not always chide us, to use an old English word, to express his angry disapproval. 
Said differently, he will not always contend with every fault as though he were our enemy. He will therefore not crush our spirit and leave us in despair. Folks, where would we be if he did not extend his mercy to us? The answer is, we would be in hell. Who among us would be comfortable with God replaying our every thought and our every action just this last week for everyone to see? None of us would be able to tolerate it. Psalm 130 and verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. David goes on in Psalm 103, verse 10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. My, what a testimony of God's grace. This is something that we could not earn. It was something that had to be given to us as a gift. I mean, beloved, we have all committed high treason against the most holy God. We have rebelled against him. We deserve the most severe punishment. But instead, he forgives. I mean, think of this. He does not crush us. He pardons us. He doesn't kick us while we're down. Instead, he dresses our wounds with the healing salve of his love. And he binds them up with the bandages of his tender mercies. And all of us who have known him and walked with him for years can give testimony after testimony of that very thing. And then he says in verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Folks, that's a, that's a long ways. Now obviously he's using hyperbole here to get the point across, but I looked it up. How high are the heavens above the earth? I thought a good place to go would be NASA. So I looked it up, and they said the diameter of the observable universe is estimated to be about 46 to 47 billion light years in every direction. Boy, you know, that's a lot of loving kindness, right? Well, I needed a little help here, here so I looked up a light year is the distance light travels in one Earth year. And light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. So one light year is about 6 trillion miles. So multiply that by 46 to 47 billion, and you will get something. I asked Siri to figure that for me. She started laughing. I mean, that, that's how bad it is. You know, it's just, that's a long ways. And then he goes on and he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. By the way, I find it interesting. He doesn't say not as far as the north is from the south, because if you keep going north, you will eventually go south. But when you go east, you will never go west. East and west never meet at the equator. And so this passage is speaking about the limitless Nature of God's mercy towards us. 
Now, if you're one of those that say, yeah, but God could never forgive me for what I've done. All I have to say to you is you are a fool. That is a stupid and frankly an arrogant statement because that statement impugns the character of God and diminishes the extent of his grace. Can there be any greater way of describing the unlimited nature of God's forgiveness than what we have here in this text. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have, here it is, compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon And then God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, unfortunately, many times what I just read is taken out of context and used to describe some of the the mysteries of divine providence, which is a glorious truth. Sometimes people will use this to try to find comfort when they're faced with with unexplained tragedies, even like this pandemic, and they'll just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But folks, that's not what this text is talking about. What cannot be explained is not God's mysterious providence, though that is unfathomable. But what cannot be explained is God's great compassion for sinners. It's beyond our ability to even fathom. Why are we invited in that text to seek the Lord while he may be found? Why are the wicked called to forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts and return to the Lord? Verse 7 tells us that he may have compassion on them for he will abundantly pardon. It's inconceivable, right? Oh, what manner of love is this? For all who come to Christ in repentant faith, he, he forgives all of our iniquities, past, present, and future and he does this I don't know what other word to use but thoroughly completely infinitely and for this reason I might also add we would be fools to allow our sins from which we have been cleansed to continue to accuse us Notice again verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let me camp on this word remove for a moment. If you go back to the Old Testament and look at what the high priest would do on Yom Kippur, the, 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 the day of atonement, which is described most specifically in Leviticus 16. On that day, he had many things to do in that whole process. And one would include taking uh, the blood of a bull, sprinkling, sprinkling it on the mercy seat seven times, the, the mercy seat being the place of propitiation, the place where the, 
the wrath of God is temporarily satisfied. And there the, the wrath of God was temporarily appeased because all sin must be punishment, punished. And there uh, atonement was made for the sins of the people. And remember, atonement always includes two things, satisfaction and substitution. And then what would happen, and this gets back to this idea of removed, how he removes our transgressions from us. What would happen then is the priest would, would cast lots for two goats to determine which one would be slaughtered and which one would be the scapegoat that would be driven away and loosed into the wilderness. The goat for the slaughter, the goat of the people's sin offering was then sacrificed and its blood was sprinkled on on the the mercy seat where the, the bull's blood had been sprinkled. But then the second goat who drew the proper lot was kept alive and then the priest would place his hands on his head to symbolically lay on that goat's head the sins of the people. And then that goat was driven out of the camp, taken to a desolate place from which it could never return. Jewish tradition tells us that the goat was led to a high cliff and then, and then pushed backwards over the precipice to prevent him from ever returning to the camp. You see, friends, those two goats symbolized propitiation and expiation. To propitiate means to satisfy or to appease. In this case, the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And to expiate means to remove means to remove the guilt of sin. So the goat slaughtered symbolized propitiation. An innocent substitute was, was slaughtered to appease God's wrath. And the one sent into the wilderness symbolized expiation, the permanent removal of the guilt of our sins. Oh, what a magnificent picture of the saving merit of Christ's substitution. Jesus was the only possible substitute and his death, his death accomplished both pardoning and cleansing, removing of sin. And here we see the great doctrine of justification by imputation. We can be declared righteous because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We can go all the way back to Psalm 103 and see all of these things pictured. Christ Jesus came and offered himself to be both the one who propitiated or appeased the righteous wrath of God against sin and also to expiate or to remove the guilt of our sin. We know that it is God who covers or literally erases or blots out our sin from his sight through the blood of Christ. Isaiah 6, 7, behold your iniquity, here it is, is taken away. 2 Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting our trespasses against us. So indeed, he removed our transgressions from us. Back to verse 13 of Psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Not those who play church and have some religious experience and say religious things, but those who fear him, who have a reverential awe for him. For, verse 14, he himself knows our frame. For could be translated indeed. He himself knows our frame. Indeed, he He himself, it's in the emphatic in the Hebrew, he himself, he knows better than anyone else who we are. He is mindful, he says, that we are but dust. You know, as a father, and I'm sure I speak for all fathers here and mothers too, for that matter, there is nothing that I wouldn't do for my children. I would instantly give my life for them. You know, there is nothing the Heavenly Father wouldn't do for us. In the context of a loving mother, Isaiah 49, 15, God says, can a woman forget his nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. David goes on to describe how man is but dust. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Now that winter time has set in, all of our flowers are gone, right? We look out, we can see where they were, but they're not there anymore. That's how we are. Our flesh is a fading flower. Again, if you go back to verse 14, when he says, for... Or, or indeed, in the emphatic, he alone, he himself knows our frame. The, the point here is we do not base our assurance of God's saving love upon ourselves or any other thing, but rather on the assurance of God's character, his promises. He is the eternal, the unchanging one, although we are transitory. We are temporal. We are changing. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 6, a voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But, I love this, the word of our God stands forever. It's interesting in verse 15 in Psalm 103, he says, as for man, uh, the Hebrew term anash used here, which often carries with it the concept of of mortality, of weakness, or even sickness. And it's so fitting in this context. (laughs) You remember in Job 25 and verse 6, Job's buddy Bildad speaks to Job about man's inferiority. He says, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Well, he did get that right, because that's kind of what we are. But if you go back here to verse 17 of Psalm 103, he says, but, in other words, although man's days are like grass, we're frail, we're transitory, we're, we're changing, we're in the process of dying, 
even though that's the case, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. I want you to notice something very carefully here. Notice the recipients of God's unfailing love. First of all, those who fear him. That's referring to believers. Secondly, those who keep his covenant. That's referring to not just a believer, but a faithful believer. And then finally, those who remember his precepts to do them. That's an obedient believer. Does this describe you? Sadly, for many professing Christians, these descriptors are nowhere to be found. Ah, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember his precepts to do them. Notice that phrase, from everlasting to everlasting. The same concept is found in Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And that psalm, as well as this psalm, speaks of the, the ephemeral, the, the transient nature of man in contrast to the eternal and unchanging nature of God. And then finally, in closing, there's this great crescendo that's occurring here in the psalm. He goes from a personal call to worship to a national call to worship, finally now to a universal call to worship. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Beloved, if I can put it practically, Joe Biden is not in charge, even though he might think he is, or any of the other rulers of the world. His sovereignty, God's sovereignty rules over all. And then he petitions the angels to praise. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Mighty in strength to perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Isn't it interesting? The psalm begins with one person. Then he summons all of the people of Israel to bless the Lord. And then he ends with a crescendo that includes all of creation. Beloved, don't miss this. Individual praise will always stimulate corporate praise. And if you're in a church that is not corporately praising God in spirit and in truth, it's because individual worship is not occurring. But when it does occur... It's just going to have a natural explosion. The doxologies of people's heart will just naturally express themselves. You see, we don't come here on Sunday morning to somehow just get pumped up to get through the week. But rather, we come here because all week long we've been with the Lord and we've just got to have an opportunity to praise Him. And we want to be nourished so that we can get into the next week and keep this going until the Lord takes us home. So may I challenge you this morning on the basis of this great psalm of thanksgiving. Get serious about your private worship, especially in these days of such dark apostasy within the church. 
these days of immorality, these days of idolatry, and frankly, these days of just sheer insanity. Call your soul to worship. Bless the Lord, soul. Listen to me, soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then you can sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the eternal truths that we have just meditated upon. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will help us not to just understand them, but to live them out in such a way as to bring great glory to your name and bring great joy to your saints and to bring saving grace to those who are in desperate need of it. We thank you. We give you praise for all that you are all that you do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.